0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I go to Arizona where they're having this huge awards banquet and I am so proud. We've been working for it so hard. I'm just trying to take it all in. And then the ceremony at the Saturday night big dinner They bring the top 10 people on the list out on stage. And as they're bringing the people out on stage, I find myself going from, oh my God, I'm so grateful to how the fuck do I get on that stage? (laughs) Why are we number 289 out of 5,000? How the hell do we get to be one through 10? I want to be on that stage. Talk about an impermanent moment, some crappy ballroom and some crappy hotel. Yeah. And nobody's going to remember shit because everybody's drinking. And I want to be able to be on that stage. And I've just took years worth of work and trashed them because I have a different reference group. I remember that very specifically and going, man, this is just like addiction. It'll never be enough. And that's why a lot of my friends that are entrepreneurs, I see they can't stop entrepreneuring the same way I couldn't stop doing drugs.
2: Yeah. So I found out about your work uh, by way of your publicist. And, uh, you know, I remember when I saw the book titles, like, great leaders look like drug dealers. I'm like, okay, that, or uh, drug addicts. And I was like, yeah, okay, I want to talk to this guy for that title alone. <laughs> like, the story there has to be kind of crazy. And I remember my roommate looking at that book. He's like, really? He kind of, you know, had this sort of skepticism. Um, but before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you what in the world that your parents do for work and how did that end up influencing, uh, the decisions that you ended up making throughout your life and your career?
1: Oh, interesting. I, that's, that wasn't going where I thought you were going with it. Um, so my, my mother was a social psychologist. She was a professor, um, that taught social psychology at a college, um, Stanford. And I'm like, I'm like, do I want to say the name of the college? I'm like, okay, fine. I'm not going to hold it back. And then, um, my dad, uh, was a lawyer. And, okay. I think that, you know, between the two, if I were to try to understand how did I get to where I am in terms of the way that I think, I've always been really curious about how people interact um, uh, with other people and the psychology behind it. Um, yeah. And at the same time, I can negotiate or debate anything to agnosium and bore everybody <laughs> around me. So, I th- and, and between the two, my handwriting is absolutely atrocious. Yeah. Well,
2: okay. So that, I, I'm really glad I asked that question because what that makes me wonder is, is like, you know, future drug addict doesn't seem like the byproduct of a Stanford professor and a lawyer. Yeah, I no, mean, okay. I've, I lived in the Bay Area. I know what that environment is like. It's yeah. basically a breeding ground for
1: overachievers. So what the hell happened? Um, it's a great question. So, uh, I, I'm sometimes embarrassed when I talk about my story because when when people say, "Oh, he's a, he's a recovering drug addict," I, I I feel like I've got to have like the Johnny Depp blow movie moment that I can like <laughs> talk about where I was in a helicopter and and all this kind of stuff. But you know, my I had a I had a good upbringing. Um, I'd say the the mistake that my parents made, um, is they tried to protect me too much from life on life's terms. So I didn't really build mm. the skills to feel comfortable in my own skin. And the first time that I learned about addiction was when I was in high school and they sat me down and my dad proceeded to tell me about how as a lawyer, he would come home drunk from the bar at 2 a.m. And then when I was six months old, and he was a full functioning alcoholic. And when I was six months old, he came home from the bar one night and he picked me up from my crib and he dropped me. And my dad was raised an only child. It meant so much to him to have a child. And he said to himself at that moment, he said, I can be a drunk or I can be a father, but I can't be both. Mm. And that was the last time that he had a drink. So I'm sitting here in high school and I'm learning about this. But then they're telling me, whatever you do, don't drink alcohol or use drugs. And here's a note to anybody that thinks their offspring may be an addict. Don't tell them not to use alcohol and drugs. Because if I have that biology, you're just incentivizing me to do so. And so that immediately created a curiosity around, well, why is this? Why is this something I need to stay away from? I was like a good kid that was sheltered, but because I was sheltered, I also, just like they were trying to caution me against the experience of experimenting with alcohol, they tried to insulate me from every emotional experience, you know, a a human being should have. Um, I remember being in eighth grade and having this like terrible rumor being spread about me in school. And my mom decides to go to the principal's office, bring the kid that spread the rumor in there and Ooh. wants like someone to do something about it. She doesn't understand. She's throwing kerosene on a fire and making it that much worse. And yeah. so they always tried to control my experience. And as a result, I grew up as a kid that didn't know how to deal with life in life's terms. And so when I went to college, I became acutely aware that I was not comfortable in my own skin, and I didn't have the instructions to deal with life, and so I started to look for how can I get comfortable, and that's how kind of how you start to create a fertile ground for addiction.
2: Yeah, so it's so strange. So the funny thing is, like, I, did you go to Palo Alto High School or in one of those high schools in that sort of area?
1: No, I, I grew up in Los Altos, moved okay. to Lo- Los Angeles when I was ten, but then um, at college I went back up north to UC Davis. Okay, well, it's
2: the thing that you know. I look at you know when you, when you have experiences like that. Typically, you know, people like you and I. I mean, my dad's a college professor as well. You know, we come from sort of affluent communities, and and you know, protecting your kids is pretty common. Like overprotection, I, I think that's common for anybody who comes from an environment like this. You know, it, I was rereading uh, David and Goliath, Malcolm Gladwell's book uh, this yep. morning, and you know, he tells the story of Gary Cohn, who basically is an aluminum salesman. Who you know basically has a very unimpressive academic record, uh, and ends up you know talking his way into a job at, you know on Wall Street to only become the CEO of Goldman Sachs, and literally that's the place where the kids that you know went to schools like Berkeley are fighting to get jobs, yet none of them will likely become a CEO. And so you know I, I wonder for parents listening what you tell them about you know children and dealing with the emotional challenges growing up. Because I, I can relate. I think my parents did a, a pretty, you know, being Indian parents, like good job trying to protect me and insulate me from things like drugs and, and all of that. Um, and of course, that backfired on them. The moment I got to Berkeley and had a bit of freedom, it was like, oh, sure. I am going to try everything. <laughs> and, uh, right. You know, I want to come back to the addiction thing and, and talk about drugs and drug policy briefly, just because I think it's interesting. But yeah, I mean, I, I'd love for you to kind of address this issue of, Um, parents and and overprotective parents and and what the impact is and and what you would tell parents who you kind of see, you know,
1: breeding sort of these kids that are future, you know, Ivy League students. Oh, man. So let's just uh, go ahead and do a disclaimer where I have no accreditations whatsoever to dispense the advice I'm about to dispense. But um, from my experience, you know, one of the things I remember uh, seeing this study that said something like, 75% of the jobs that the current children will do in the future haven't even been created yet. Hmm. And when I when I came across that, I I was thinking, you know, the number one thing that I want to teach my daughter and my soon-to-be son is how to lead themselves. Because I don't know how to create and control an environment that they're going to grow up in and eventually they're going to have to go out into the real world. And I think that that's the thing that my parents, their, their motives were good but i think when when you're trying to train your children and insulate them from them, not just like the the physical hard things like drugs alcohol violence but also just the emotional things like rejection um being vulnerable in a public way taking risks i think the big challenge is, is that emo- internal emotional regulation is the reason that addicts use drugs and alcohol and we have a large percentage of our population that's addicted to something Where they are using a a substance or a behavior or a thing outside of them to try to regulate their internal emotional state. And so to be, while they are in a safer environment, that is where you teach them how to do that. And they're in order to do that, you got to take risks. You got to let them fall down. You got to surrender what happens to them. And my parents, I mean, seriously, like my mom tried to get my after prom canceled which again did not make me popular you wonder why i became a freaking drug addict. but she literally called my high school and tried and everybody found out that michael's mom was trying to cancel after prom because she thought it was a violent place i was like some club down in like off of la Angeles or something like that in, in la and mm-hmm. and so you know she told me in eighth grade i wasn't allowed to go to the front yard um, when i was playing with friends and they would drive by to see if i was out there because i could get kidnapped so yeah. when when you're taking all these steps to prevent life and life's terms from your child, then what you're setting them up for is to let them leave your home, go out into the world and actually have to deal with life and life's terms, having had no practice. Yeah, well, it's it's
2: funny because, you know, like you read the Gladwell book, you think about William Dershowitz book, uh, The Miseducation of the American Elite uh, excellent sheep, and, and you realize like the people who end up in, in places like Stanford, Berkeley, and you realize like we've been conditioned our entire lives to have nothing but advantages. We've never had to face any real difficulty. And so as a result, we experience exactly what you're talking about.
1: And, and for me, you know, I, I kind of danced around it. So, but I'll share this where we moved to in LA was Beverly Hills. Okay. And so I grew up in Beverly Hills. Um, and I think that in, in that environment, so much so much is thought of in terms of giving your kids advantages being able to bestow on them the the level of gratitude that you have and all this stuff without actually making them go through the trial by fire that you had to go through to be able to deal with it now trial by fire is so huge
2: yeah so before we talk uh, about addiction in particular one thing i wonder you know you you mentioned your mother um and i think this a perfect segue there is what impact does you know having something like dealing with addiction end up having on the relationships uh, in your life, both, you know, in the past, i.e. your parents and then relationships in the future, you know, whether it's significant others or or anybody else.
1: I I mean, pour gasoline on every relationship that you have and just light a match. Mm. Like for me, I mean, isolation is a big part of addiction. And uh, my thing was I didn't let anyone in. I lied to everybody. And my goal was to control every situation, every person in my life to enable my ability to get high. And that meant that I had to manipulate my parents to get money. Um, that meant that I had to lie to my friends to, or steal from them straight up. Wow. Um, it meant that uh, I would be emotionally abusive and uh and unstable. And, and so like one thing that would be a common practice for me is I would wake up in a morning and I would literally have to go walk around where I lived and look for like where I threw up to jog my memory and look at my phone to jog my memory for who I had talked to the night before because I knew I was going to owe them an apology. And so if you weren't somebody that used alcohol and drugs hardcore, I didn't want to spend time with you. If you were, I would probably try to steal from you. And when I was in the grip of, you know, being high or drunk, I'd probably do something that was hurtful. I wasn't like, you know, again, I wasn't Johnny Depp and and blow, but but I was not a good friend to be around. I even had this one friend that was like a normal goody goody guy. And I was so distanced from him because I couldn't stand the fact that he wouldn't get high with me. And so I would just make fun of him for that fact. And so as a result, we create this distance and you contrast that with my friend that I got high with every night. He would go to work and I would steal from his, uh, his refrigerator. I'd steal his food. I'd steal his drugs. I'd steal his liquor. And then I would invite strangers over to his house and trash his house. So like, I was not, <laughs> I think what you're getting is I was not a good friend. Yeah. Um, and it compromised all relationships and any romantic relationship. We got a saying in recovery, sick attracts sick. I attracted sick people. <laughs> and I was sick, and so I had sick relationships. So if you've seen a movie about an effed up relationship, it's probably one yeah. of the ones that I had an active addiction.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh.
0: Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh com.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, it's funny. I love that you bring up below because that's probably one of my absolute favorite movies of all time. I, you know, I get to vicariously experience the insanity of that guy's life. Right. Uh, but you know, so one thing I, I do want to talk about it is, you know, drug use, drug policy. I mean, as an addict, you've probably got a very interesting view on this because, you know, we like we've put people in prison for, you know, like marijuana possession, you know, things right. that like harsh sentences um, that have literally just torn apart lives like. Look, I will. Yeah, anybody who's heard the show knows this. I smoke my fair share of weed, I, but like I, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm an addict. Uh, you know, it's not one of those things where I can go seven months. I can smoke a joint today, and if there's like no weed available, I'd be a bit irritated. But I can manage. You know, it's not right. one of those things. Um, and because you know, I don't know when you grew, grew up, but like I grew up in the sort of you know '80s, Nancy Reagan, just say no, dare period. And it turns out that all the data around dare proved that it actually increased drug use. That it yes. didn't actually work. Now a you as of an that addict, yeah. So so we must be you know close in age. But you're you know a, a, you know somebody who became a drug addict. And so I am very curious. Like when you see you know how we do this, both from criminalizing this to putting people into prison to um, drug policy, because you know what, like I have plenty of friends who've experimented with things I have as well, and we're f- productive and functioning. Like our lives didn't go off the rails. But I also know I had a roommate who was this incredibly talented person. He actually was number five at a very, very, very well-known startup that everybody has listening to this has heard of. And I remember when I moved in with him, he's like, yeah, he's like, I'm an alcoholic. I was like, how did mm-hmm. you end up being, you know, so successful financially and, and, you know, professionally and, you know, how those two things coexist. So I realized like 20 questions in one, but um, yeah, I mean, so you, as an addict, what is your perspective
1: on on how we look at drug use in this country? So to to me, I think that, um the the best way to analyze this is to like just look at alcohol versus weed first yeah. um because i think that's a very tangible um comparison especially with obviously uh it becoming you know legal in different capacities mm-hmm. in different states and all that kind of stuff so yeah. for for me it's really simple let's start with alcohol alcohol is legal it's accessible and almost everybody's drinking it so for me to be able to be successful as an addict Um, in recovery, I have to be able to lead myself. I have to be able to use the tools of recovery, specifically for me, a 12 step program to cultivate my recovery, to insulate me from, you know, the access to this, to this drug that does all these different things to me that everybody's doing. So when I look at, um, the other drugs that are out there, uh, without, without thinking about like criminalization and, and how it affects economics and all that kind of stuff, I just think about, you know, addiction there 's no difference between alcohol and marijuana to me there's no difference mm. between these other drugs and alcohol they 're all drugs they 're all something that can make me numb and and and, and make me numb out life on life 's terms and You know one of the arguments used to be that that marijuana or, or weed is a gateway drug. Dude, I got news for you. We all are using the gateway drug and it 's called a smartphone it 's something <laughs> outside of us that yeah. numbs us. I mean, how many people don't know- are are feeling antsy when they're bored or waiting for someone they immediately totally. start looking for notifications to like flag down on their phone, so we all have a gateway drug, and so the challenge isn't the actual drug, it's the person, and some of us are able to use these numbing agents and when like you just described for yourself within a level of balance, and some of us, whether it is nature or nurture, who cares some of us. It's we have the disease of addiction and we literally we go against our will and we do something that's completely illogical and we trash our entire lives in pursuit of that thing. And I think the solution lies inside of the addict, not inside of regulating a specific drug. Um, I mm. I personally, so then personally as an addict, um yeah. I would love if they were all illegal because then I wouldn't have to like walk around <laughs> and, and experience them. But yeah. But that's just because, you know, for me, I don't notice alcohol anymore really that much. Like I'll be out. Um, I could be at a party. I could be at a, at a networking event and I, don't, I almost don't notice it, but I will notice if someone's smoking weed just because I'm not used to um, it being around me all the time. Right. I mean, I, I used to, but not now. And yeah. so for me personally, I would prefer that I don't have to see them. So like in our home, my wife and I, there's no alcohol in the home, um, uh-huh. but it's not because I'm scared I'll drink. It's just because I don't want it around. It's not like right. a helpful thing for me. To, it's the same reason why I'm a San Francisco 49ers fan. I don't have any Dallas Cowboys posters at my house. Like i don't care about the cowboys i hate them so so, no offense to the cowboys fans out there or the seahawks fans out there because you know i hate you too so but the point the point is is that i think the problem is the addict and i think that trying to um manage addiction through the actual substance completely ignores the fact that people have very different reactions to the substances yeah interesting wow
2: so, well, let's do this. Let's let's get into um, you know, the content from the book. And I, I think where I want to start is with that Sam Goody moment when you got out of uh, you know, uh, rehab. Because like I, that story in particular stayed with me, and I was like, oh wow, this is kind of was that the moment where this sort of idea of this sort of mask framework started to form?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, it was it was where I took theory and had to test it in reality. Yeah. So. Um, I love that story too. And, 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 you know, it starts with me being in treatment. You know, I wake up September 1st, 2002 at the Betty Ford Center in Rancho Mirage, California. That's my first day clean. And, and the thing that's really important is when you go to rehab, they don't just tell you don't use drugs. If, if that's all it took, you could just give us a book and we go home. They give us a step by step system that teaches us how to proactively engage in a process called recovery so that we are not going to use drugs. And so there are principles. That are that I've been able to consolidate down into three um, that come from that process. And so the Sam yeah. Goody moment was when I fresh out of rehab, I moved to a halfway house, and when I walk in there, they tell me I have five business days to get a job, and I, I like had no idea what a business day was because a drug addict every day was using, um, and and so I immediately have to go looking for a job because. I, I If I know that if I don't stay in this halfway house, I'm going to be out on the street. If I'm on the street, I'm going to use. If I'm going to use, I know I'm going to die within a year, right? So I start filling out applications everywhere. And I'm, I'm walking and, and, and I love music. And so I fill out one at Sam Goody. I fill out one at all these other places. Nobody calls me back. It's day three. I'm starting to sweat. And Sam Goody calls me. And so um, I'll stop here for anyone that's listening. So if you're older than me, Sam Goody was a record store. (laughs) Right. (laughs) If you're my age, it was a CD store. And if you're like really young, you don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Exactly. I still remember it. Spotify and you didn't have to go, you don't have to go anywhere to get your music. And it's back when music came out on Tuesdays. So I I get (laughs) one call and and I know I'm going to go into this job interview and I know I've got a gap in my resume and I don't know how to talk about it um, from all the time using. So I call my sponsor and I'm like, hey man, so like what do I do? When they tell me Hey, when they asked me about this gap, what, what, what do I say? Because I can't tell them that I was using drugs and alcohol to the point where I was homeless. I just got out of rehab. I'm in a halfway house. And if I don't get this job, I'm getting kicked out. I can't tell them that. And then my sponsor completely surprised me. and He said, that's exactly what you'll tell them. I'm like, what? And so he, he said, you are either willing to practice the principles in recovery or not. And yeah. one of the big principles in recovery is to surrender the outcome. And so in that example, I had to go into this job interview and be willing to own something that nobody in their right mind would want to own. And I had to let go of the result. And the only reason I was willing to do that was because my sponsor was the only person that I thought could help me not die. Hmm. And so I find myself hearing this advice, thinking he's crazy, going into the job interview, sitting down across from the manager, and I start to sweat and I start to get nervous because I'm anticipating that if I tell him that I'm an addict in recovery, that he's going to, you know, he's going to judge me. He's not going to want to hire me. Um, and, you know, if you're listening, you may not be an addict, but nobody wants to voluntarily disclose the absolute worst thing about them in a job interview, especially if it's the only interview you have. And, it, and that yeah. interview is a difference. That job is a difference between you being able to live in a house or not. And here I am hafting to go out on a limb. And so I practiced the three principles that I had learned in recovery. And so the first one is to practice rigorous authenticity. The second one is to surrender the outcome. And the third one is to do uncomfortable work. And so rigorous authenticity was telling him that I was a drug addict. In order to do that, I had to surrender what he was going to say or think and whether I was going to get the job. And the uncomfortable work was actually physically doing it and sitting there and seeing his response. And that was an incredible moment where I I assumed that recovery was the worst thing ever and I was screwed. And at the end of the job interview, he looked at me and he smiled and he said, when can you start? Mm -hmm. And that was when I realized when I got into treatment, I like carried a bag full of masks, you know, the, the different versions of Michael, who do I need to be to get what I want in this situation? And that was the first time in the real world that I had been truly just myself and it was in like this situation that I never would have imagined being able to survive being myself. And I got the job anyway. And that's what made me really challenged this whole idea that I have to be someone else in order to be successful in the world. And then especially because of the context in the professional world.
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny because the, the entire ethos of everything we do is so aligned with your sort of view on this. I, had a similar experience where, you know, and, and we'll actually go through some of the masks that you actually identify, but um, where, you know, I think it was like 2012 where I was applying for jobs and everybody would see my body of work and I'm like, this doesn't look like you need a job. It looks like you're going to quit the second you don't need us. And I finally got to the point where I was like, yeah, you're right. I actually have no interest in working here long term. You're just a stop along the way. Um, and you know i remember very clearly i was like all right that's it i have to come out with this like and i started writing publicly on facebook about every like literally i've been fired from every job i've ever had and i was like now this is out there on facebook i was like wow i probably won't ever get a job again and amazingly enough that the content from that sort of period of my life became the wall street journal best-selling book that i self-published it was the weirdest fucking thing um and that was one of those moments where you're like oh there's like a greater truth to this but so i, I want to come back to that because what's interesting and, and i you know i think this will be interesting to talk to in the context of what happens you know once you achieve some degree of success but let, let's go through these specific masks so, you know you have four of them you know saying yes when yep. you mean no hide, hiding a weakness and avoiding difficult conversations and holding back your unique perspective um i you know i think the t- three the the other three in particular are more interesting than yes you saying yes when you mean no because like I mean, if you think about a resume, like a resume is kind of bullshit because it's literally a way of hiding weaknesses more than it is showcasing your strengths, Right? Uh, at least in my case, because I could make myself go into a job interview and bullshit my way through an entire job interview, never mention the fact that I got fired, make these people think I was the best thing since sliced bread, get them to hire me and then realize, wow, this guy sucks at this job. Um, And like I would, you know, for the very reasons we're talking about these masks, like nobody wants to say, oh, I've been fired from every job. Or, hey, uh, you know, difficult conversations. Or they're saying unique perspective, particularly when we're standing in the face of authority figures. Mm-hmm. So let me tee it up to you for there, because, I mean, you're, you're a CEO. So, you know, like I remember feeling all the time, I was like, oh, if I say anything to this manager, I'm going to get fired. As it is, this guy hates my guts.
1: So I think that for all of us, we, we know intellectually on some level. That if we share our unique perspective over the course of our life, we're going to be more successful or have a more rich life. I think we know we need to have difficult conversations. We know that we need to share our weaknesses in order to get what we need to be successful. And so when I was in corporate America, one of the things that was interesting is like, we all know this stuff, but we're doing we're, we're wearing the masks anyway. And so when I was rolling around this Fortune 50 company, I, I stood out like a sore thumb. Because And it wasn't because I was in Nashville, Tennessee, and I had long hair, hoop earrings, and I said, dude, and wear flip-flops. It was because I was saying no to things that made people uncomfortable. I was aggressively sharing my weaknesses. I was having difficult conversations. And if my boss's boss was in the room or the customer was in the room, I still shared my unique perspective. And it's not because I was trying to be successful at business. It's because these were the things that I was learning in 12-step recovery. And they told me that I had to practice these principles in all my affairs. And so part of my obsession has become thinking about, okay, you're worried about what's going to happen in this professional situation. You know, long term that if you wear these masks, it's not good for you. Um, but you do it anyway. And and the conclusion that I came to was the reason that addicts use drugs is because it's an, it's an involuntary obsession. It's something they can't control. It doesn't, it defies logic. And so what I realized was, even though like we know we need to say no, we know we need to share weakness, we know we need to do these things. I believe that most of the leaders in this world are addicted to their masks. And the reason that we talk about authentic leadership and we don't have authentic leaders or companies or brands is because we've misdiagnosed the problem. We keep saying, be authentic, be authentic, the same way they told me, just stop using drugs, just stop using drugs. An addict does not stop doing their addiction until you tell them what to start instead. And in the case of drug addiction, I got a 12-step program that was so step-by-step and idiot-proof that millions of people in any education level, any language, any country, any whatever can use it and go from slamming dope in their vein through an IV method every day to being able to put together decades of clean time because it's a foolproof step-by-step method. But we don't have the equivalent for how do you actually take off the mask in these situations. So what we're left with is the fear, the -hmm. fear of how is this going to go? What is this person going to think? What will they say about me? How will this affect my promotion? How will I be able to keep my customer? What are people going to say online? We worry about these things. and, And what we don't realize is we are addicted to the mask because that's what makes us manage the fear the same way that drugs and alcohol help me manage my internal feelings is the same thing that we're doing and it's to our detriment but we we just don't know how to stop. Mm, wow. Yeah so the the interesting thing is that you know you've been
2: in a position where you're CEO, you know, of a company that has done extremely well financially and you know having been in a position now like where I've raised investor money, I've had the book deals with publishers. Um recently I was on a Netflix documentary that ended up, you know, like just kind of going way more crazy than people thought it was going to it hit the top 10 on all of netflix and number one in india and one of the things that i think was very interesting for me as you know you get any sort of degree of success whether it's from investors whether it's from you know publishers is that at a certain point i began to say i was like okay you know what all of my behavior is also a reflection on all of the people who have put their trust in me and who have invested me Mm -hmm. in, in me in some way or another not just those people but the people who listen to our show so that you know you know, and if I'm like off the rails, then that reflects poorly on them. And I think where I'm trying to get with this, and you probably might be the most qualified person to answer this question because I've asked it in some form or another before, is there's a sort of fine line between being vulnerable and taking off Mm -hmm. your masks and being a train wreck. Um, And I know because I've crossed the line where, you know, my Facebook feed was literally like me just, you know, using my audience as my therapist. You probably have a very unique perspective on where that line lies.
1: So that's a great question. And um, one of the things I'll usually uh, illustrate when I talk about this is when I go do like speaking engagements, um, sometimes someone will like pull me aside and be like, look, I'm all about authenticity. But some of my people on my team are immature a-holes. So I don't want you just giving them permission to be <laughs> immature a-holes. <laughs> and so what I'll do is I'll integrate into, into how I talk about this. Do you remember the movie The Mask, ironically, with Jim Carrey? Yeah, I do. I, I okay, don't remember so, if I ever saw it but I, I know well, what so you're He about. puts on the mask and he's kind of this, it, his true self comes out. He's this funny, um, fun loving guy, but then the bad guy in the movie puts on the mask and this absolute monster comes out. Yeah. And so when we take off the mask, we show what's really the real us underneath. And then if we keep the mask off, we get a feedback loop on whether the real us works for us in the real world. So I'll give you a tangible example. Um, Being in corporate America in a fortune 50 company, um, I was real about being a recovering drug addict and, and I was really open with that. And, um, people thought that that might be irresponsible. It could hurt my success. In fact, someone did start a rumor that I had relapsed. They were competing with me for a promotion. It still didn't hurt me. So I learned like, okay, this didn't hurt me, but did help me. Well, you know what? Over that period of time, people connected with me more. Um, I had different people within the company who seek me out because they wanted to get help for their addiction. And so it was like, okay, so being vulnerable here really worked. But then an example of where it didn't work is, and this is a really embarrassing to admit, um, after I gave my TED Talk, Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do, um, I was feeling myself and I thought I was Tony Robbins for a minute. And I started trying to have interventions on my friends because I just wanted to quote unquote, be authentic. And so I have three best friends in recovery. Kate, Charles, and Toby, and I find myself over the course of like the next six months after my TED talk, like unsolicited, telling them what they need to do to improve their lives. And each one, and it's what I thought, and I was being real, but each one of them telling me, hey, you're being an asshole. Stop being so arrogant and assuming that you know what I need to do. I'll ask you if I have a question, what we do in 12-step recoveries, we share our experience. We don't tell people what to do. And so what I realized was by keeping the mask, I had an opportunity right then and there when I got that feedback to put the mask back on, right? And I said, oh, well, you know what? I don't have that weakness. I'm going to hide this weakness. I don't have that weakness. It's your problem, right? But if you keep the mask off, you get to deal with the accountability of the feedback loop. And in this example, I realized three of the people that I love in the world the most, I was acting in a way and thinking in a way that was hurtful to them which was actually violating my more important value of like loving my people. And it gave me the opportunity to change. It gave me the opportunity to grow, to go, okay, so let me get curious about why I'm doing this. Oh, I'm actually scared they're going to have pain or a negative outcome. Okay. And what are some tools that I can use to to make this better? Because I actually want to change that part of myself. So in the one example with Dell... Um, showing my true self, it worked and it's great. And that's awesome. And it's still, I, I got hurt, but I didn't get hurt that bad. And then the other example, as long as I keep the mask off, the real world is going to give me a feedback loop. Like if it's, if, if being true to myself is walking naked through a supermarket, I'm going to get a feedback loop. The world is going to tell me <laughs> if, as long as we're in the U S that's not okay. I, uh, maybe if I'm wearing a physical mask and I'm naked, they're cool with it. But but, but (laughs) i shouldn't have made that it might be (laughs) but like i'm going to get a feedback loop right and 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 as long as i remain open i'm going to be able to grow and learn through that so i think that it's about it's about willingness to not only um practice rigorous authenticity but it's also about surrendering the outcome and doing the uncomfortable work to grow to be your best self yeah
2: Well, let's just let's talk about what you call the mask free system. I mean, you've alluded, obviously, to the the principles of regressive authenticity surrounding the outcome and doing uncomfortable work. But, you know, that's one component of it. But you talk also about the sponsor in a society full of mask free leaders. Can you expand on the other two?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, there are three legs to the stool in a 12 step program and 12 steps, the most common uh, solution for addiction recovery. So you get the 12 steps, which is a system. You get a sponsor, which is another addict that's worked the 12 steps, that's willing to guide you through them. And then you get to go to meetings, which are very popular in movies and all that kind of stuff. So though they all have a purpose and they work together. And if you take one out, the whole thing doesn't work. And so when I was studying masks, I developed a mask assessment because the only way that an addict ever changes is if they know that there's a problem. And so we created this mask assessment. I've worked with Google and Dell and like really big companies, and I've assessed over a thousand or fifteen hundred leaders at this point. And we started with 50 masks and we were able to get down to those four. And we said, okay, so how do we practically help somebody achieve if it's mask addiction is the problem, how do we help them achieve mask recovery? And the big thing that I knew from my experience was if I just give someone a book or a podcast or a white paper on the principles that I've named here, um, they're not going to do it. The same way if I just read about um, the 12-step program, it wouldn't have helped me get clean. That's not how you treat addiction recovery. So I was like, okay, so it's one thing to equip people with those three principles, which comprise the mask-free system. You learn how to practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome, and do uncomfortable work on a daily basis using a step-by-step system that I created. But in order for that to actually work, you need a guide, you need a sponsor. And here's the great things... The great thing about sponsors, sponsors are the best leaders in the world. They are better than CEOs, executive coaches, mentors, any sort of coach. They're the best leaders in the world because what a sponsor does is they lead you by sharing their experience, trying to overcome what you're overcoming, but they share with you as they go. They share their failures. They motivate through vulnerability. They say, hey... I I try to do this thing. So like I try to not go to meetings and I relapsed. So you can learn from that experience. So sponsors actually just lead by showing you how they lead themselves. And so in the mask-free program, you can learn the mask-free system, but you need a mask-free sponsor that's going to guide you and show you how to implement it by being a facilitator and by sharing their experience. But even that isn't enough to help you overcome a masked world and mask addiction and so you need to be able to join the third leg of the stool, which is a mask-free society. And that's where we have like on Monday night at 6 Central, we have um, every uh, a group coaching with everybody in the mask-free program. And we find ways for people in the mask-free program to connect because here's what happens in a 12-step program. I go to my home group in a 12-step program with other recovering addicts two, two hours out of the week. And that is enough to insulate me. From the values of the terrestrial world where I spend 40, 50, 60 hours, I need to be around other people that share my values. So when my people in recovery say, hey, man, we don't use and we surrender. And then I go into my house and I watch TV where there's alcohol commercials, or I go into work and everybody's trying to control outcomes that they can't control. I'm able to remember, hey, I want to be part of the tribe of the recovering people so i'm going to execute their values, and they're kind of like walking into those domains with me. well, same thing with the mastery program. We're living in a masked world where everybody's addicted to the mask are doing those four things, so you need to surround yourself with other people that are working a mask free system with a mask free sponsor so that you're able to take their values with you into these situations where you're tempted to wear a mask wow mm, well let's um
2: Talk about the sort of final chapter of this. I mean, you've been successful, you know, I think financially at a level that most of us, you know, couldn't have fathomed. You kind of, you know, it seems like you've gone from, you know, middle ground to rock bottom to like the heights of your career. And, you know, having grown up in the environments you did, looking at a place like Beverly Hills, you know, looking at the privileges come to you, like, how has all of this shaped your own, you know, sort of consciousness around money and wealth?
1: So that's a great question. You know what makes me rich is uh something that's available for free and that is my recovery. And wow. and that's because I was taught very early on that recovery is about the the inside. It's not about the outside. And so growing up in Beverly Hills, and I always just feel bad even saying that because I feel like people have so many different uh perceptions of that, but like growing up in Beverly Hills, I saw a lot of people that had a lot of stuff that weren't happy. And you see a lot of people that have that have the things that everybody else wants. Um you know, kill themselves or make terrible decisions. And so I learned really young that uh, material things um, can prevent pain. So if you can afford healthcare and you have a healthcare issue, that's great. But it doesn't buy you happiness. And so I lost everything. You know, my parents cut me off and and all that kind of stuff In active addiction. I've been on my own ever since. And in recovery, I had to work, you know, uh, minimum wage jobs and all this kind of stuff. But I was getting rich in early recovery because I was learning how to be comfortable in my own skin. I was learning how to be comfortable and, sat- and satisfied with being in the moment and, and practicing rigorous authenticity surrounding the outcome and doing uncomfortable work. And at the same time, I am an addict. I'm wired that way. So it explains why when I got a big promotion and a big raise, I suddenly decided that I had to buy every single DVD that was ever made. And I lined <laughs> my entire house with all these DVDs that I don't think I ever watched once. Yeah, and and now I wonder if like I should keep them like you know because it'll be the next baseball card. I don't know, but I I started to try to I had twenty pairs of jeans, you know, and and I wasn't I I made twenty thousand dollars a year my first year in recovery, my first year or two, I was making sixty thousand dollars a year, and I had twenty thousand dollars in debt. I had more debt when I was making more money because I started to think that I could buy happiness, and I'm really grateful for that experience because. By the time I worked my way up through the corporate ladder, risked everything I had and maxed out my credit card and drained my 401k to start my startup. And then as we grew and then we sold to a publicly traded company, by the time I was able to be in a position where I had some resources, the thing that I was able to know was that they weren't going to make me happy. In fact, um, I was very fortunate enough to be able to buy a dream house that I'd always dreamed of. And I took a video, um, one of the first nights I was there and I said, I know that within a year, this won't make me happy. Yeah. So, so let's lock in the enjoyment of being in a home that has, you know, the different features that you wish that you'd had and also know that it doesn't matter and it's not happiness. Because when I first got clean, I walked into my sponsor's house to work steps, he had a beautiful house, a beautiful car, a beautiful wife. And I said, dude, you have the life I want. And he said, it's not mine. It's on loan from God. And he can take it at any point. And the real gift is I can still be content. And I was like, shit, I want that. Because I grew up with people that had all the stuff that my sponsor had, and they didn't have that level of happiness and peace. I wanted that. So by the time I actually was really, really fortunate and lucky enough to get that stuff, I have a loose relationship with it. And I understand that that's not what's going to make me happy.
2: Well, I think that what I what I appreciate so much about that is there's an acknowledgement of the sort of diminishing permanence to everything in our lives. You know, whether it's wealth, whether it's you know status. Like, you know, I I remember exactly what you experienced. Like, you know, people always think, oh, you know, like I'm going to accomplish this thing in my career. Like, oh, I got a book deal with a publisher, and I got a book deal with the best publisher in the world. You know, and like you know, these are like the the people that have been my guests, like Seth Godin and Simon Sinek, like you know, like our icons. Within right. probably 90 days, the buzz wore off. And, my, and I remember I asked, I think a psychologist, uh, Sasha Hines, and I were talking about this. And she said, what happens is your reference group changes. Um, she's like, now your entire reference group is a bunch of people who have published books and published books that have sold more than yours are. So suddenly you feel like a loser in comparison. And so, and she said, and the thing is that that's the thing. It's this just never ending cycle. That's why I say, you know, they should actually just call the hedonic treadmill, the hedonic hamster wheel.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or, or the hedonic torture chamber. Yeah. Um, because dude, you know, you, t- you saying that I'm reminded of, um, I didn't understand, you know, the Inc awards chart, the fastest growing comp- private companies in the U S right. And, and so everybody wants to be in the Inc 5,000. And I remember when we were building our startup, I didn't understand how they measured that growth. And so I, um, inappropriately in like 2011 told my team that we were going to be in the top 10%. And then I realized that they needed three years and a base year of a hundred thousand revenue. Anyhow, Point is, is that three years later, we actually finally, I've been working for it so hard. We finally, our first year of eligibility, we're on the Inc. 5000 list and we actually make the Inc. 500. So we're in the top 10%. Actually, we're in the top 5%. And so I go to Arizona where they're having this huge awards banquet and I am so proud. And I, we've been working for it so hard and I, I took a team member and I'm, I'm just trying to take it all in. And then with the, the, Ceremony at the Saturday night, big dinner. They bring the top 10 people on the list out on stage. And as they're bringing the people out on stage, I find myself going from, Oh my God, I'm so grateful to how the fuck do I get on that stage? (laughs) Why are we number 289 (laughs) out of 5,000? What, what, how the hell do we get to be one through 10? I want to be on that stage. Talk about an impermanent moment, some crappy ballroom and some crappy hotel. And nobody's yeah. going to remember shit because everybody's drinking, and I want to be able to be on that stage, and I've just took years' worth of work and trashed them because I have a different reference group. So like I Holy. remember that very specifically and going, "Man, this is just like addiction. It'll never be enough." And that's why a lot of my friends that are entrepreneurs, I see they can't stop entrepreneuring the same way I couldn't stop doing drugs. Wow. Wow. Well, I think that makes a, a perfect place to to wrap yeah, our conversation up. So I want to finish with my my
2: final question, um, which is, and, and it's funny because I think you and I will be very aligned on on how we both answer this. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Man, I probably should have prepped for that question knowing your podcast and I actually didn't. What makes somebody unmistakable? I think that in a world where Everybody is trying, just like the E. Cummings quote, everybody is trying to make you be like everybody else. Um, It's when you are powerful enough to be your true self in the world where everybody's trying to be someone else that makes you unmistakable.
2: Wow. Amazing. Um, Well, this has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, Just insightful and thought provoking. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, uh, your book and, and everything else that you're up to?
1: Uh thank you for that. So there there are two ways. A you can google Michael Brodywaite, B R O D Y hyphen W A I T E. I got my ass kicked for a hyphenated last name for 25 years, but no one else has that, so Google will help you find me, which I'm very grateful for. Um and the second thing is is that um the mask assessment that I mentioned, you know, say yes when you could say no, hide a weakness, avoid difficult conversations, holding back your unique perspective. If you want to know which of those four masks is holding you back, what your authenticity percentage is, and a personalized report on how you can live mask-free, go to whatsmymask.com, just as it sounds, W-H-A-T-S-M-Y-M-A-S-K, whatsmymask.com, and you can take our assessment in five minutes. It's free, and we'll give you that report. Awesome.
2: And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast.